as a lifelong debater, I've come to recognize that some of the things that we argue about are merely to pass time when we're bored, and, uh, and some things actually have significance. And when you're arguing about things that are uh, not really important, they seem important, uh, right up until you get into a really important thing, and then you realize that, uh, well, that was kind of stupid. This, we now have an important issue to talk about. Right? For example, you might be having a family discussion that seems very important about like budgetary items and who's been going over the budget and who's, you know, who's not being fiscally responsible. And then comes in a very, very important discussion like which pay the, the toilet paper goes. Right? And now all of a sudden, we, this is very important. We have to discuss which way the toilet paper goes. Uh, and of course, uh, being Christians, uh, we understand the importance of going back to the original. And someone did that. Someone, I saw someone go back to the original and pull out a photo of the patent. This is true. I would show it for you, but I, I haven't been doing my PowerPoints here. Uh, and they showed that the, it was a guy by the name of Seth Wheeler from Albany, New York, in the, the 1890s, patented the toilet paper roll. And uh, it shows the toilet paper over. Someone didn't trust that and went back and looked at Now when you do patents, a lot of times there's multiple submissions to get a patent. And someone's pulled out and said, no, Seth Wheeler sub submitted this, and this uh, has the toilet paper under. And then now we have competing uh, things. And, and so I want to talk a little bit about uh, false choices. Right? We talk about false choices, and when we present things, in, uh, and we're talking about, of course, the... the uh, the presentation of religion and Christianity uh, and, and, and some of the ways throughout history that this has kind of, maybe some of the elements of this have been um, for, what, for whatever motive, but misrepresented, uh, whether it be good intentions or maybe for whatever reason. Sometimes culture and things have, have misrepresented what God intended and I want to talk about the how and the why of false choices. We get into something where a uh, false choice is essentially this, is, is if I want to um, convince somebody of something, I present it from the uh, perspective that there's only two options, right? And, and I, I structure things so that it's obvious that one of these is not ideal, that you should not like this. Uh, and so the obvious choice, then, is the other one by process of elimination. Um, and, and so uh, I, I make people feel like they need to pick one thing to avoid the negative thing. You know, do you like pizza or are you un-American? Like, well, I don't want to be un-American, I guess. But I don't really like pizza <laughs> as though it's a false choice. Right? Um, and... Uh, so it makes it easier to manipulate people to do the thing I want or to believe the thing I want and to be like me because of this false choice that I presented. And, and why it's called a false choice is typically there, there is a third option or maybe a fourth option or maybe the, the third option is a, a, a combination of the two choices. I suppose you could... Uh, you know, like pizza and be un-American. I, I suppose, you know, I, I don't know. It's, it's, uh, uh, th there's other options, right? But we don't like to present it that way because when we, we present a third and fourth option, it gets harder to, to funnel people into the way that I would like to do things and the way that I think people should think, 
We began this series uh, in James chapter 1, so I want to go back there. And we identified actually a false choice, or a couple false choices. Uh, James chapter 1, and and so we began uh, in verse uh, 27, he says, Pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this, to visit the orphans and the widows in their trouble, and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. Uh, And so we saw a false choice. Uh, We talked about how some people think, well, uh, you know, um, there's... I'm not religious, I'm spiritual. Well, you can actually be both. See, that's a third option. You don't have to choose between being religious and spiritual. Uh, some people like to emphasize the, uh, the generous and the benevolent side of Christianity, the helping of things. And, and, and they do it almost to the exclusion of maintaining one's virtue. And, and another group of people um, will exercise the, the, the moral and the, the virtuous side of Christianity, that personal, what we call personal religion, right? uh, and they will de-emphasize the outreach side of things and, and, and the, the interactions between the world as though there is this, this choice that we have to make between the two. But James is kind of clear that uh, pure and undefiled religion contains both personal faith and interpersonal faith. Uh, so so the, we get into these false choices. So we, we, we try to force people to choose between their expressions of their religion. Now sometimes there are choices. There are absolutes. Right? We, we saw one, one of our messages we went through and we saw Paul was pretty uh, unambiguous. You're going to have to choose uh, whether you serve the law or grace. There, there's no hybrid uh, version of that. In fact, Jesus was clear that if you try to make a hybrid version of of the law and grace, you're going to destroy the reasons for both of them. Uh, you make both of them unusable. There's something that's happened this year, and I hesitated to include this in my message because I know the thoughts that it might evoke. But I've watched through the course of this year brothers in Christ force people into false choices and, then, and doing it from, from largely different perspectives. I've seen this largely on Facebook. My Facebook feed is a lot smaller than it used to be. I've, I've seen people put the false choice, well, if you don't wear a mask, you don't love your brother. That's a false choice. Uh, on the other perspective, I've seen people put the false choice well, if you don't come to in-person services, you don't have faith. That's a false choice. Right? And we, sub- we, we, we kind of try to direct people to do the things that we think that they should do. And I've watched this tear apart long-term relationships. I, watched, I was talking with my mother... And my mom's in her 70s, and she had a favorite cousin growing up. A favorite cousin. And uh, her favorite cousin hardly will talk to her. Based on the events of this year, think about that. My mom was born in 1947. Think about the things that have gone on since 1947. And the building of relationships and the friendships that have happened, we've seen things this year that severed 70 years of relationships. 
because of false choices. I'm going to leave that topic right where it lies. We're going to talk about something different. I want to use that topic to jump into what we are going to talk about, which is why we do what we do. We've talked about grace and and law, and we've talked about faith and works, but those are what we do. And I want to start getting into the concept of our motives and why we do what we do. And I want to turn to the Old Testament and begin there. And begin in Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter 12. We're almost to the end of Ecclesiastes. A verse right before the end, verse 13, he says, Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God, keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Well, that sounds pretty unambiguous, doesn't it? Fear God as a motive for obedience. This doesn't seem to leave much in the way of other motives, does it? That's the whole duty of man. It's structured as a statement without exception, right up until we get to Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22, and this is a passage we've probably all memorized at some point in time. Matthew chapter 22, and Jesus here is being questioned on the the great commandments. He says, what is the greatest... Uh, the man comes to what the scribe says, what's the greatest commandment of the law? In verse uh, 36, <clears throat> Jesus answers him. Verse 37, he says, Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And then the sister passage to this adds, and with all your strength. Well, that seems that love is the entirety of the substance of my relationship. Love is an all-consuming motive for everything I do. And so we get into this conundrum. How do we explain what appears to be this, this uh, a choice? This appears... This is not a... a you, Honest people have wrestled with this. This is not necessarily something which has been obscured because people are are sneaky and devious, but but this is difficult. Solomon seems to say the whole duty of man is to fear. And Jesus says the whole duty of man is to love. How do I get those two? Well, let me uh, give some of the explanations for this. Because when we have a what looks to be a paradox, we want to explain it. How do we reconcile these two very different? Well, the easy one would be, well, Solomon wrote under the Old Testament, and Jesus is speaking here, getting towards the New Testament. In fact, that would be confirmed if we, if we looked at 1 John. 1 John chapter 4. I mean, a, a book about love. First John chapter 4. And verse 18. He says, There is no fear in love. But perfect love casts out all fear. 
because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. And so, um, so we look at these explanations. So some says, well, it's the old versus the new. Um, or, or someone will say, well, fear of God has more to do with respect than, than it's actually like a, a fear fear. Like, you know, I'm afraid of spiders or something. Or we'll say, well, kind of in, in conjunction with what, what, what John writes, Proverbs written by Solomon, he says, uh, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's not the end of wisdom, it's the beginning. It's something that you start out with and then you replace that with love. Okay? Or someone might say, well, no, fear is absolutely the kind of fear you're thinking about, but it is a fear of hell. It's, it's, it's based on if you're sinning, yes, you should be afraid of things, right? And there's some elements of truth within each of these explanations, but. Um, I've noticed about explanations that we don't necessarily have to have good explanations. We just have to have an explanation, right? Um, so, so Katie's, uh, let me explain how this works. Uh, Katie's brother, he'll go and, uh, he doesn't use debit cards, I don't think, too often. He uses credit cards. And so he has to sign. Now, he draws Mickey Mouse. He doesn't sign a signature. He draws Mickey Mouse on the little pad. This is what he does. Now, <clears throat> that's not a signature. But he has fulfilled the quota that that machine requires, right? It's an explanation as far as that machine concerned. This is the explanation of who you are. He doesn't have to actually have signed. He doesn't have to have a good explanation of who he is, the, the actual signature. We sometimes do this with our explanations. I, don't, I just need something to, to fill that void of why. I have a discrepancy and I, I need this discrepancy filled. Here's an explanation. Good. My mind is at ease. We want a good explanation, so I want to investigate some of these explanations a little bit further. First of all, I know that a covenant, the difference between old and new covenant, cannot be the explanation between Solomon and Jesus. Here's how I know that. First of all, Jesus is quoting from the Old Testament. That's the first indication. Jesus is quoting from something before Solomon ever was dreamt of. He's quoting from Deuteronomy. They're getting ready to go into, uh, into, the, uh, into the promised land and, Sol- and Moses is giving the, the law for the second time. And that's where Jesus' statement comes from. See, Jesus understood that love was the entirety of our requirement too. How can, how can you be, uh, your entire being be consumed by love and by fear at the same time? And that is interesting. Someone says, well, but God is love. That's His nature. And so our, 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 our duty to Him should come from the, the very nature that He exudes. God is love. That's actually from 1 John chapter 4, verse 8. Same chapter. Well, I want to look at another passage. 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Because someone says, well, this actually answers a, a bunch of, of these, or, or a couple of these different uh, explanations. Second Corinthians chapter five verse eleven. 
He says, <clears throat> Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are well known to God, and I also trust that we are well known to your consciences. Now, um, we see now that, now in the New Testament, fear is a motive. So, so, as I say, covenant isn't a good explanation. There was love as a motive in the Old Testament, and there's fear as a motive in the New Testament. They're not exclusive. That's a false choice. I, I know that right away. But let's just stay right here in, in 2 Corinthians and answer a different question. Because we, we seem to... Well, well fear is, is replaced by love as you mature. This is an apostle talking. And he's talking about the apostles. This whole passage, he says, Knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. He's talking about himself as a, one of these apostles. Here, Paul, years after he's become a Christian, has not decided that he needs to not have fear as a motive. Knowing the fear of a, a present continuous action. Knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. Matthew 10:28 Turn there Matthew chapter 10 verse 28 This answers yet another discussion another explanation <clears throat> He says do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. We discussed hell as a root of fear. And I want to make an important distinction here. God does not tell me to fear hell. That's important. He tells me to fear the one who has the power over it. God has never told us to be afraid of an inanimate object. He says, that thing that you would have for other people, the fear that you would have for people who can... What kind of fear do you have for people who can destroy your body? Do you have a deep respect? Someone points a gun at your head, do you deeply respect them? No. No. He says, that emotion gets reserved, not even for hell, it gets reserved for me. He's not talking, I mean, deep respect is fine. But God is taking it up a little bit higher than just that. And we're going to talk about that. Now, we're going to talk about some of these other explanations as we talk about the proper relationship. And I don't want it to be a negative thing. If I preached this sermon 200 years ago, it would be a little bit different. I'm not trying to emphasize fear. We just happen to live in a society that has de-emphasized fear. If I preached 200 years ago in a, in a society that uh, a religious atmosphere that really had almost no discussion of love whatsoever, this would be a much different sermon. I, where, where Jonathan Edwards preached... Uh, a sermon, very famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. That was the religious atmosphere where, where you walked around shaking all the time. Right? This sermon would be different. But, but we have a, a lovey-dovey religious atmosphere today. 
And so we might need to, to bring in some different tools to help us obey. So I want to talk about these proper roles of love and fear, not getting rid of either one of them. And so we do need to emphasize God's nature. We referenced 1 John 4.18, and we referenced 1 John 4.8, that God is love. We're not subtracting that. This sermon is not an attempt to subtract the nature of God's love or or, or love as a motive for service and obedience. We do need to understand the context in which John wrote. John addressed this letter as well as his gospel later on in the first part of of the first century. Um, and so there's a little different thing happening towards the end of first century, and that is that people have, have brought some of their paganism into Christianity. And what happened when they brought their other their biases based on paganism? Well, they're bringing some of those attitudes. Read, or, or, or even a lot of... You know, the movies that surround kind of some of the, the old Greek mythology read of, about those gods that they worshipped. They were diabolical. Maybe Poseidon and, and, and some of these others, they were, uh, they were unpredictable. They were unstable gods. They were vengeful gods. They, they killed their children. I mean, in their, I'm not saying this is real, obviously. We understand it's mythology. They slept with their parents. I mean, they did awful, gruesome things. And this is the mentality of people coming into the church who never heard about God. And so he's got to identify the proper characteristics. They're all too acquainted with a fearful God. But in that context... And in that culture, there was something missing about the identity of God. Something vital that they needed. They needed a loving God. John isn't saying that this is the, the one verse that, that, that we can just skip the rest of the scriptures. It was just what they were missing. But this letter, as I say, is not the only scripture on the nature of God. There's kind of a lot in the Bible on the nature of God, isn't there? Deuteronomy chapter 7. This is an interesting passage. Deuteronomy chapter 7. It's the previous chapter, chapter 6, where, where Jesus quoted. And so as they're getting ready... To go in, I mean, he's going to give this law. Moses is going to walk up a mountain. He's going to die, and they're going to. Joshua is going to take him in. This is this is all right, right before the conquest, and we know the story of, of who these people are and how afraid they are. So, Deuteronomy chapter seven and verse twenty-one, he says this. He says, "You shall not be terrified of them, for the Lord your God, the great and awesome God, is among you." And we love that. We love that word, awesome, because like God is totally awesome. But that's not what that word means. Some of yours say that God is a terrible God. And the problem is is that no matter what the English translation, they both do a disservice. Right? Because we kind of equate the word terrible with bad. Right? I had a terrible day. That's not what the word means either. 
And here's something interesting as I, I got in, tried to dig a little bit. Do you know that this is not even an adjective? This word is not an adjective at all. It's a verb. That's why we translated, we had to figure out a way because that doesn't make sense. For us, God is, and we, we, need a, we need an adjective to describe God. But this is the word, the Hebrew word, to fear. He says, literally, God, don't be afraid of them, God is to fear. You see, God's identity, he's kind of a diverse God. Love isn't the only attribute of God. God is love, but God is fear. And so both are motives, because both are connected to his nature. And so we are brought right back to this immediate contradiction, aren't we? How does this work? How can something be fear and love at the same time? I don't understand that. That's, that's a big topic for me to handle. I want to talk about what God expects. Maybe this will help us bring it into context here a little bit. As we said, godly fear is not simply respect. The New Testament word for fear, you've heard it before. It's the word phobos. Phobia. You have a phobia. That's now now the, the Greek word isn't you know, doesn't have our clinical psychological definition. We have a mental illness that we call phobias. That's not what the word meant. But it does imply the same type of emotion that we have. It is an underlying cause. You heard that phrase once or twice? It is an underlying cause. I have a fear of heights. It is a condition I have. I don't know why I have it. I don't like it. Now, I can, I can go up a ladder. Now, there's an interesting thing about a fear of heights. Now, I'm doing all right right here. I'm only about a foot and a half off of the general surface. And I can do this right here. Now, I'm only relying on my heels right here. Knock me up about 30 feet in the air, and I couldn't do this. About 30 feet in the air. Now, now, gravity hasn't changed. Nothing's changed. But 30 feet up in the air, there's no way I'm doing this. I saw a guy swinging a hammer on a roof, and, and it was, he was on a second story. And, uh, and, but it wasn't that, but then there was a, a, like, right, the house was built over a cliff going down to a waterfall about 30 feet below that. So he's 60 feet up, feet over, nailing on fascia board on a, on a house. <laughs> oh, you're crazy. Uh, I, that's not even far enough for me. I'm, I'm getting lightheaded here at 30 feet in the air. Right? It, it took me a couple of weeks to do the siding on my house, just being up you know, 12 feet on a ladder. I don't like heights. What does God expect? This is fear me. Now, I'm not in constant shaking, as I said. I'm not shaking right now, but it is an underlying cause. <clears throat> and all you have to do is put me in the right condition and you can bring it out. Right, it's right there at my fingertips when I need it. (laughs) 
It's difficult for us to think about how love and fear are in us at the same time, but they are. At the same time that I have this underlying condition called fear of heights, I have love of things. And they're all motives for me. And one can overcome the other. And I want to compare. This is where I, I believe the, the comparison, where, where we look at 1 John 4.18, where he says, Love casts out all fear. Perfect love casts out all fear. I don't think that's any different from Deuteronomy 7, where he says, Don't fear, because I am fear. I am fear itself. I am the personification of fear. All he's saying is, they're really both driving, I think, at the same point. I don't think, as I understand it, that he's saying perfect love of me drives out the fear of me. I think both of those were saying your love and your fear of God will drive out your fear of other things, including hell. I'm afraid if I have a fear of God... All other things. And the vice versa as well. If I have a love of things, it drives out things. And I have that fear of heights that I talk about. Deathly afraid. But put a fire 50 feet in the air and give me a rickety wooden ladder. And in that house is one of my kids and I will fly up that ladder. Won't even hesitate. Not a, not a second. I, uh, a friend of mine is a uh, is a volunteer fire department um, fire. He works in the volunteer fire department in Louisiana. <clears throat> His job is to tackle people because they have a lot of trailer homes, and uh, people will run into those things. And so his job is to stand there and tackle people because people immediately lose their fear. For a love. And that is how they work together. Love drives out fear, but fear drives out love. What? I'm going to explain. Let me explain. Perfect love is obvious how it drives out fear, but I want to look at Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5. Verse 11. He says, So great fear came upon the church and upon all who heard these things. Heard what things? The story behind this is Ananias and Sapphira. Ananias and Sapphira had some loves. They had a love of money, for one. That was not their only love. See, what was happening was, was that people were, were selling their things and putting them at the apostles' feet. And, and <clears throat> Barnabas was one of the first ones to do this. He sold all of his possessions and uh, if someone does that, you get it's like people respect that. And so there is no question that Barnabas immediately was well-respected person. And I think my my interpretation of this is that they liked the respect more than they liked the money. But they they liked the money too. They couldn't get rid of the money, all of it. But what they really craved was the respect of the people. Maybe they were just kind of forgotten people. I don't know what went into this. 
And we notice that after this happened, great fear came upon people. Fear drives out love. Just the same as love will drive out fear. And so God says, I have a diverse nature. I'm a loving God, but I'm a fearful God. And, and, and if you fear me, it will drive out the competing loves. Your love of money. You fear God, it'll drive out your love of whatever. Your love of self. Your love of pleasure. All of those loves that would compete with the love of God. Love of self-preservation. God says, fear me. They don't compete. These are not competing motives. They all work. They're all tools of one thing. So to say that we love or we fear is a false choice. To think about it this way. As I say, I have love and I have fear at one moment in time. At one moment in time, I have all these things as underlying causes inside of me. Sometimes I don't feel very loving, right? Just like sometimes I'm not afraid of heights. <laughs> sometimes I don't appear to be very loving. But they're all in there. They're all inside of me. We just need the condition to bring it out in us. So why would we think that here's God has made these emotions and put them in me? In fact, God has said that He has all of these as, as conditions in Himself that are His identity, and yet He would not choose to use them all as tools in the toolbox, as a means of obedience and service and worship. God says, use every tool. There's other tools. God says, I'm holy. There's lots of things God says, I am this. God has lots of character traits, not just one. If we worship a, a God of one character trait, we're worshiping an inferior God. Worship a superior God, a God who is so diverse. And use all of His traits that come from Him. Natural fear and natural affection are both within me. And spiritually they should be too. Because it will be the spiritual things that drive out those natural affections. It will drive out those natural fears. Perfect love will drive out my fear of failure. It will drive out my fear of rejection. Perfect love of God will drive out fear of the unknown. You ever been afraid of the unknown? Like, I don't even know what I'm afraid of. I'm just afraid. Right? Perfect love will drive out those fears. It will drive out the fear of hell because I know I'm right with God and I thank God I don't have to be afraid of that. All those inanimate objects that we want to attach fear to, God says, no, you don't have to be afraid of it. Afraid of losing relationships, afraid of, a fear of this, a fear of that. Oh my goodness, we can go on and on with the fears just like we can go on and on with the loves. There's no cure for the human condition that is going to be found in one tool. And so my challenge is to take up all the tools available and more 
as you read the scriptures, look at the identity of God and derive from that what God wants you to be in holiness and in love and purity and, yes, in fear. But do one thing. All of those fears that you would have, have for God and not for anything else. And all of the loves that you would have for things that compete, have for God and for nothing else.